Torah and tea, and for the portion of Pikude, which is also Chazak. You know, we're finishing Chazak. So Hashem should give us the strength and the um, this parsha is uh, uh, you know starts off already. And Rosh Chodesh is going to be in a couple of days on Thursday and Friday is Rosh Chodesh, and uh, next Shabbos is uh, already uh, one more week left almost for Purim. I actually want to dedicate mention the, my father of blessed memory. Next week is his yorzeit. In the leap year, I commemorate him two times: once in the first ador, and then again, again in the second ador. You know uh, the uh, things that you can do. Uh, you know you, it's not so clear the first or the second, so you do it in both. And um, again, you know uh, it's getting one month before Pesach already, before Nisan. So you know, hopefully, uh, March has arrived. Also, you know. Hopefully the uh, be- the weather is going to be nice to us, uh, and um, but the main thing is there should be peace in Eretz Yisrael. There should be peace in the uh, in the Ukraine, and for Jewish people over. I think the world is watching. I think this has a, a really a major effect on who else is going to be the next one in line. Is going to be another. Uh, if the uh, democratic world consensus can put enough financial pressure as we're doing now to stop some of these tyrants, maybe we can change things by this unified working together. You know, maybe uh, this could be a, a somewhat of a small resolution. But in any ways, uh, it's beyond our scope. All right, we'll do a little bit of the Parsha Pekude. And the first sikha we'll do today is the very first beginning. And the second one is the very end. And we'll learn a little bit lesson from the beginning of the Parsha and a little bit of a lesson from the end of the Parsha. So what does the uh, Parsha start with? So you see, it starts off like this. Now, in the, in the last few weeks, Truma, Tetzave, Kisiso, and Vayakel. Those were all discussing the Hashem's instruction to Moshe how to build this Mishkan and the various different the structure of the Mishkan, the uh, vessels, the kalim that they used in the Mishkan, the garments of the Kahuna, the special extra four garments for the Kohen Gadol. We talked about the Jewish people contributed gold, silver, copper, and all kinds of uh, materials that they needed for the construction of the Mishka. So all the verses were discussing continuously about the various different items and details of the construction of the Mishka. This Parsha, the last Parsha of Pikude, is basically the summary of what we learned before. So now the Torah gives you an accounting it says, Eile Pikudei HaMishkan. The verse says, this is the uh, counting uh, of the Mishkan, which means we're going to have the counting of the different material, of the different monies that were raised, how they were spent. We have a, uh, a, a sheet, expense and uh, income sheet. We're going to have a balance sheet 
and we're going to see how things worked out. So, this is the counting of the Mishkan. Now notice, it's very interesting. It says Mishkan, and then it says again Mishkan. Eilep kudei ha-Mishkan, Mishkan. Okay, it says Mishkan ha-Eidut. What is Eidut? Eidut is the testimony. What does that refer to? Eidut is a testimony. What is the Eidut? Eidut is a testimony that Hashem is resting amongst the Jewish people. It's a Mishkan that testifies, basically, that Hashem forgave us for the sin of the eagle. According to Rashi, the whole reason why God told us to make the Mishkan was basically Hashem appeasement. Hashem sort of forgave us, and Hashem says, I am going to dwell amongst you and make the Mishkan, and that will be, my presence will be amongst you. But the wording in the verse seems to be a little bit uh, strange because it repeats the same word Mishkan twice. Eilep kudei ha-Mishkan. And then it says, these are the counting Mishkan, Mishkan ha-Edut. It could have just said, Eilep kudei Mishkan ha-Edut. It doesn't say, this is the counting of the Mishkan, the Mishkan of the Edut. It could have just said, Mishkan ha-Edut. And then it says, that was counted by Moshe, uh, this was the work of the Levites who went and they carried the Mishkan. Itamar the son of was So now the word Mishkan, Mishkan means a resting place. What do we call it? The Mishkan. Mishkan means a resting. It means that Hashem rests. Over. That's called the Mishkan. But it's very close to a Hebrew word of mashkon. A mashkin. A mashkin. Anybody know what a mashkin is? A collateral. When you uh, loan someone money, right, so the borrower gives the lender a collateral. Or you take a mortgage. You mortgage your house, so you're lending money from the bank, right? And you put your house as a mortgage. The mortgage is called a mashkon. That's a collateral. That's what's a mashkon. So Rashi says, mashkon, mashkon. Read this as mashkon, mashkon. Two collaterals. What does it mean? It means that the mishkan was taken away as a collateral two times. That's why there's two times Mishkan. Rashi says, not the Mishkan, but the Mikdash, the Beta Mikdash. Now, as you know, the Mishkan was only the temporary dwelling. While the Jewish people were in the desert, they had this Mishkan. The Mishkan was a portable synagogue, okay? <laughs> or it was a portable sanctuary. A portable means that everything was folded up, put onto the wagons, and they journeyed along. How many stops did the Jews make in the desert? 
They had 42 stops, Mabiz Masois. And each time for each stop as they journeyed, as we'll see in the next part, every time they journeyed, they used to fold up, take apart all of the uh, disassemble, the Mishkan, and put it on the wagons. They would travel, and when they stopped again, they would put it up again, and they would set it up again. So that's called the Mishkan. Eventually, when they passed over the Jordan River, and they entered into Israel, the Jewish people spent uh, about 400 years until the actual, more than 400 years, until around 400 years, I forget the exact number, well, we can figure that out, we can look it up. But they spent a long time until they came and they built in Jerusalem, they built the final, the, the Beit HaMikdash, <coughs> they built over there. And during the journeys, they used to use some of the items of the Mishkan. For example, they were in Shiloh, Mishkan Shiloh. Over there, they used the covers that they covered the Mishkan. They used it over there too. While they had a structure, but they still had, the, some of the items were used until finally when they came to Jerusalem. And then they built this whole big structure as the, it's called the Beis HaMikdash. Unfortunately, the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. Two times it was destroyed. Now, we're going to be soon talking about Purim, right? Purim took place in between the first and the second temple. The first and the second Beit HaMikdash. That's when, because uh, the Jewish people were exiled from land of Israel, Achashverosh's uh, son, Daryavish, he was the one that allowed the Jewish people to build the Beit HaMikdash. So you had the second Beit HaMikdash. So you had the first Beis HaMikdash that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. He destroyed the first Beis HaMikdash. And then in the middle we had the story of Purim with Haman trying to destroy the Jewish people. But after the story with Haman, Achashverosh's son, he allowed again for the building of the Beit HaMikdash. So that was, uh, that was in between. So, and then eventually uh, the Beis HaMikdash of the second Beis HaMikdash was destroyed as well. Now, the miracle of Hanukkah took place in between during the time of the second Beis HaMikdash. In the middle of the second Beis HaMikdash, that's when the miracle of Hanukkah took place. It was built, it was destroyed, built again, but it was uh, two periods, the first Beis HaMikdash and the second Beis HaMikdash. They were both destroyed. During their destruction, they were taken as a collateral. So Rashi says like this, that's why it says Mishkan, Mishkan. The, the Mishkan, or the Beta Migdash was taken two times as a collateral. As what? What was the collateral? That the Jewish people will repent and do Teshuvah. So here we're already almost a thousand years in exile, right? And the, uh, the Mishkan is still not by us. It's still been it's been taken away. And we're still waiting for Mashiach to come and bring it back. So, the um, Torah hints over here, Mishkan, Mishkan, the two Mishkans mean the two collaterals that were taken as a collateral until the time we'll get it back. Ruby points out when you give something as a collateral, 
at the end when the loan is due, and I mean when you pay back the loan, uh, then you get back your collateral. In other words, a collateral, a mortgage, means only temporarily. It means that it really belongs to you, but it's taken as a collateral. Now, so, there is an interesting observation. I talk about the eternity of the Mishkan and the eternity of the Beit HaMikdash. It's brought down in the Talmud and the Meforshim that explain that the Mishkan that Moshe Rabbeinu built, did you ever wonder? Whatever happened to all the, the vessels? Whatever happened to uh, the structure? What happened to the wood? What happened, what happened to everything that was built? We read the Chumash. We read about the Mishkan and the Kelim. What, what happened to them? Now, we know that, you know, like for example, that Achashverosh uh, took out some of the vessels of the Mishkan and they, they bragged that Vuchadnezzeh did it. But what happened to the bulk of everything? What happened to the Aron? We know the Aron had the Luchas. Where are the Luchas now? What happened to the tablets? What happened to the Holy Ark? Where is everything now? So in the Talmud, in various places, it's brought down that everything was hidden in the ground. Like in the place where the temple is, when they built the temple, and they no longer had use for the Mishkan because they had the replacement. So everything was hidden in trenches in uh, underground uh, caves and uh, areas. But the bottom line is everything is intact. Everything of the Mishkan is intact. Nothing was destroyed. Interesting. Why? Because these things were made by Moshe Rabbeinu under the instruction of Hashem. This was a direct... Moshe Rabbeinu was known to be a dedicated servant of Hashem. He's called an Eved Ne'eman. He was a faithful servant of Hashem. Whatever Moshe Rabbeinu did had sort of the power of the doing of Hashem. Anything that Hashem does is eternal, stays. When Moshe Rabbeinu built the Mishkan, everything he built was eternal. And therefore, that's why we say that none of the items that were built through Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, Betzalel, those who helped him, in the Mishkan, they remain permanently forever because they have eternity in them. But contrast that with what happened to the uh, Bet HaMikdash. <laughs> we lost everything, right? They, they uh, you know what, so I take that back. I said before, uh, Achashverosh used the Kalim of the Bet HaMikdash. But, so if we contrast the Mishkan, I, told, I mentioned that everything stayed intact. But the Beit HaMikdash, we know they burnt down the Beit HaMikdash. We know they uh, robbed the Beit HaMikdash of all of the Kalim, and they broke and they stole them. So there's no eternity over there. It almost seems like the Beit HaMikdash lacks eternity as the Mishkan. Why? Because the Beit HaMikdash was not built through Moshe Rabbeinu. That was built 
through King Solomon, that was built later on through Ezra and the second base Amigdash, it lacked that eternity. So those vessels and those structures and whatever they built, they were there for a while, and then they're gone. That's the Bet Amigdash. But on the other hand, very interesting, the Rebbe points out. On the other hand, we see actually that there is more eternity in the Beit HaMikdash as far as the place where the Beit HaMikdash was built versus the place where the Mishkan was built. The Mishkan traveled, as I mentioned, was journeyed in the desert. It went from place to place, 42 stops. None of the places were permanent. They were just temporary, right? They were temporary over there, and they went to the next place, they went to the next place. So it seemed like there was lacking permanence over there. On the other hand, when we talk about the Beit HaMikdash, once the uh, Hashem chose Jerusalem as the place on the Temple Mount where He wants the construction of the Beit HaMikdash, then it is prohibited to make a Mikdash anywhere else. The place is only in Jerusalem, only in Israel, only in Jerusalem, only on the Temple Mount, very precise place that we have to have the Beis HaMikdash. So you see, the place of the Mikdash becomes eternal. That's the place. But the place of the Mishkan does not become eternal. And that's actually for the same reason. Because who chose the exact place? It was chosen by Hashem. Since the place was chosen by Hashem, Hashem's chosen remains permanent. The choosing of the place remains permanent. Basically, the structure was not built by Moshe Rabbeinu. It wasn't built directly in the direct command of Hashem. And it wasn't built through Moshe, so therefore it lacked the permanence. But the place that Hashem chose, that is considered to be the Nachalah, the, the final uh, destination where the Mishkan, where the Beis HaMikdash rests. But the Rebbe points out, this is all the difference between the Mishkan and the Mikdash. But the third Beis HaMikdash, that's going to have both advantages. It's going to be the advantage that it won't get destroyed anymore. Everything that will be built in the Beit HaMikdash will be forever. Because we say that the Beit HaMikdash will be built by Hashem. So all of it will be by Hashem. That will be permanent. And it's also the place will be permanent. So you have the permanence of both of them. You have the eternity of the Mishkan and of the Beis HaMikdash. So while on the literal level, you know, we don't have the uh, Beit HaMikdash now. We don't have the Beis HaMikdash now. But we know that there is more than the literal Beit HaMikdash. We also have a Beit HaMikdash in ourself. Our soul in our self is a Beit HaMikdash, is a sanctuary for Hashem. If we allow Hashem in our heart and in our soul, and we allow for that expression, so then we're having our own Beis HaMikdash over here. So 
while the physical Beis HaMikdash may not be here, uh, but we have to remember that it's merely a collateral, which means it is really here. Uh, it's even while it's not here, it's here. Which means to say that we don't have it at the same level, but it's, it's fully there. We don't have it at a revealed level, but it's fully here. And therefore, it is actually our responsibility to see to it uh, that we keep on building the Mishkan of Hashem. We also know a shul, a synagogue, uh, a place where you study, a place where you daven, a place where you learn Torah, a place where you do kind, kindness, uh, good deeds. They, these are all the sanctuaries for Hashem. These are all the Bate Mikdash Ma'at. But you don't have to necessarily go to a shul. The Rebbe has encouraged people to make their home into a sanctuary. If you have a mezuzah, you have holy books in your home, sefarim, holy books. The Rebbe actually encouraged people not only to have a mezuzah, a a charity box, and to give charity in the home, but to actually attach it to the wall. I don't know if you ever heard this. The Rebbe said, attach the mezuzah, the charity box, put in a screw through the, I don't mean a screw, I don't know if you want to ruin your wall, but the Rebbe actually encouraged people to attach a tzedakah box to the actual wall. Your wall, your home will become a holy home. It'll become a home of kindness because part of the wall is going to be a charity box. That becomes part of your structure, part of the actual uh, building of itself. And again, like we see now the pictures from uh, Kiev and other places in, uh, in the Ukraine, you see how the shuls over there and the people are getting, they're feeding the people, the orphans, the elderly, the sick, and they're uh, providing for that. They're making that the Beis Hamikdash from where their kindness and goodness is being spread out to all of the area for all people. And uh, so this is something that we have to remember, that we have to, uh, while we don't have the physical Mishkan, we don't have the Beit HaMikdash, we have our Neshama, we have our soul, we have our goodwill, we have our good deeds. We can keep the Beit HaMikdash going, and we can connect uh, with Hashem through the Mishkan, and hopefully Hashem will listen and um, to our prayers, especially uh, we're coming to Adar Adar Marbim Besimcha now, this year as we have said it's two months of Adar so you have 60 days of Simcha we went through this Rebbe proves that the joy starts with the first day of Adar, you don't have to wait for the second day of Adar but certainly the Rebbe doesn't negate the 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 uh, the fact that when the second day uh, second ador comes in, in which there is Purim, and the real Napechu, that that is certainly a time to celebrate. Certainly, Mishenichmas Adar Sheni, uh, 
we should increase our joy, our samcha, our uh, celebration. And, you know, the Gemara says that if a person has a difficult time with something, with someone, it's a good time to go for judgment is on the month of Adar because the Jewish luck is favorable so you can be successful. And um, sometimes you stand in judgment because you have to fight your Yetzirah. You know, Yetzirah is also waging war. So you got to fight him. So how do you win your Yetzirah? You have to do Simcha. You got to be with joy and then pull him into the joy of your celebration, of the Yom Tev, of the spirit, of the goodness and the kindness, and then you will be victorious. And then we come from Purim, we come to Pesach. These are days of redemption, days of miracles, great of beautiful days in which Hashem showed us miracles and, uh, and hopefully Hashem will show us miracles again very, very soon. Okay, so this is, this is the first part. Let's do for a minute the uh, other uh, the other portion of it. And that's uh, the end of the Parsha, as promised. This is the actually the very end of the Parsha. So what happens over here? We built the Mishkan and we put in all the, all the vessels and Moshe Rabbeinu is anointing the Kohanim and he's bringing the Karbanot and everything. Okay, what happens? So the verse says, these are the last one, two, three, four, five verses of the book of Shemos, okay? And then we'll do Chazak, Chazak, Vinis Chazek. So what do we read in the last few verses of the parsha? So we learn about that the cloud covered the tent of meeting. So we call the Oel Moed, the Mishkan, is also called the tent of meeting. The cloud represents Hashem's presence. Hashem's presence covered the Oel Moed, and the verse says, Hashem malei et mishkan." The glory of Hashem, the honor of Hashem, filled the Mishkan. There was such an intense revelation of the glory of Hashem. There was such a powerful, so that even Moshe, Moshe, the holiest man, the leader, the verse says, Moshe wasn't able to enter into the oil oil. There was such a powerful presence, such a great revelation, such an awesome, powerful level of the divine that descended inside of the Ohel Moed, that Moshe couldn't come on him. The cloud was on top of the Mishkan and the glory of Hashem filled the Mishkan. So what happened at the end? There's no end. What happened at the end doesn't say. So what happened? The next parsha begins Vayikra el Moshe. God calls Moshe to come in. 
God calls Moshe. And raises Moshe up in the Hasidic discussion, the Torah, we learned beautiful Maimorim, discussing all this, how all this raised up Moshe to the highest of levels, so that now he can go into the Mishkan. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu has had the experience, because Moshe has been on the mountain, there was a cloud over there too, there was a cloud, there was an Arofel, Moshe Rabbeinu entered over there, he had to go in, he needed help over there too, but he couldn't get in. So, essentially, the next Pasuk, in the new book of Ayikra, continues what the verse left over of over here. But then we have three more verses. These three verses seemingly are totally out of order. They don't belong over here. And they certainly interrupt in between the storyline. So what is, let's see what the three verses are. Verse Lamed Vav, Lamed Zayin, Lamed Ches, 36, 37, 38. It says here like this, that when the cloud went up from the Mishkan, the Jewish people would journey. So the Jewish people did not journey until they saw the cloud went up from the Mishkan. That was a sign that they're going to travel. What happens, the verse 37 says, if the cloud did not go up, but it stayed over the Omoed, so then they don't travel. Until when? Until it goes up. So they didn't travel. And finally, the verse says, for the cloud of Hashem was on the Mishkan during the day, and there was a fire at night in front of all the Jewish people as they journeyed. What does the journey have to do with what we've just read before? We were just reading before how the building of the Mishkan had brought down the presence of Hashem, how the presence of Hashem was so intense that Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't come in. That's what we read over there. Why are we discussing now in the Parsha later on in the book of Bamidbar we discuss how the Jews journeyed and over there the verse goes through exactly that when the cloud went up and it went down with a lot more details. Why is the Pasuk talking about this? And yet we have to say that actually in essence we are trying to we are trying to bring out the ultimate of this parsha. The parsha is to connect the infinite with the finite. In other words, Hashem who's infinite, bring him down in the finite, in our details and what we do. The infinite Hashem is brought down through the finite actions of what we do. You see, First, we're counting the Mishkan in the beginning of the Parsha, right? When you count something, that means that it's a limited. We're counting it because you could, there's a number to it. And yet we say, oh, Moshe couldn't get it. It was so intense, it was beyond the count. You know, it's like counting until there is no number. This is actually 
whole idea of connecting the infinite with the finite, which is actually what a korban does. You take a korban and you bring in the infinite in a very service of the elevation of the physical of an animal. We take Hashem. So there's one thing, you know, to take Hashem in the spirituality, but to take Hashem in, you know, in dark places, to take Hashem in difficult places, to take Hashem into the challenges, to reveal Hashem's presence everywhere. I mean, isn't that what the miracle of Purim was? To reveal that even in the darkest of days, even in the greatest of danger, when all the Jewish people were standing in front of annihilation, and then they revealed the presence of Hashem through the uh, activities of Mordechai, getting the people to turn to Hashem and do Teshuva and get to Hashem. So Hashem came down in the most difficult place. So as Rebbe says, one of the lessons from this end of the parsha is to teach us, yes, while the Mishkan is built, you have the glory of Hashem, Yes, that's very impressive. But what happens when uh, there is no cloud of Hashem? In other words, there is no a cloud of Hashem. There too, this is part of the intent, this is part of the Mishkan. The part of the Mishkan is that the Mishkan needs to influence even when the Mishkan is not standing up, even when it's folded up, even when you're journeying, and you don't have the presence, you don't see. So at that time, you still are living, and you're still finding Hashem. You know, Hashem plays with us a game of hide-and-go-seek. You know, we don't know where He is, He's hiding. And we question, we say, where are you, Hashem? How come, Hashem, you're allowing for this to happen? I don't see you. Why am I going through this? Why do I see this? How come? You know, we have a lot, a lot of questions. And those are, I guess, legitimate questions where we are. You know, I mean, we have, uh, you know, we have a complaint that Hashem hides. So, what does he expect from us? He's hiding. He's doing a good job in hiding, and we don't see him. And if we don't see him, what happens is soon enough we stop looking for him, and we can't. We don't look for him anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is why the pasuk is telling us: actually, when the cloud goes up from the mishkan, which means there's no more mishkan over there, and the mishkan is folded up and your journey, you still got to live with that amuna, with that belief, with that inspiration, with that trust, with that energy from the Mishkan. That's why these are the last verses to tell you that Hashem's presence is not only when the Mishkan is standing. Hashem's presence is even on the journey, even while it's going. Over there, we still have to, until He gets up. Matter of fact, as Rabbi also says, you really journey when you see Hashem even in the darkest of places. When you find Hashem in places that are obvious, that there is light, 
that there is holiness, that there is, you know, you see, you know, there's easy to be inspired when you're in the shul, you're in the davening, you're learning, you're meditating, it's easy. But the real journey becomes if you are able to appreciate and find Hashem's presence even in the dark days, then you really have accomplished that you've shown that even in the darkest of places, there's nothing, no place where is void of Hashem. Hashem's expression is everywhere. So this is a lesson the Rebbe learns from, explains why we have the verse about the travel in the desert, and that the Pikude is limited, but it's also the unlimited, that when the cloud goes up, that is one of his journeys. So, I guess, you know, it's a good encouragement for people. Sometimes if we know that it's only a test, if we know that we can do it, if we know that when we achieve, we'll go even higher, it makes the journey easier to know that there's somebody looking over us, protecting us, and giving us a hand. You know, when we try to do something, Hashem is always there uh, to help us out. The Gemara says, brought down in the Tanya, that if God would not help us, we would not be able to overcome. Hashem is there to help us. We just got to reach out to Hashem and ask Him for His help, and Hashem will give His help uh, to us if we reach out to Him. All right. This will be our lesson for today. Anybody, please, welcome to take some questions. If anybody has any questions, want to make any comments, go ahead, Janice. Thank you. So I was thinking when the cloud left, well, then we have the fire. Exactly. That's God's presence too. Well, at that time, it was always, there was the Mishkan, but that went in front of them. So in other words, they followed the cloud and they followed the fire. Over there, the Mishkan was, the cloud was on the Mishkan. But that is like, they have to catch up with the, that, that showed them the direction. The fire in front of them and the cloud. When they, when they journeyed. And they, they journeyed, they had the cloud in the uh, daytime and they had the fire in the nighttime. Yeah. So we always have that fire there. Fire stays with us. Yes, yeah, that's the inspiration. Please. I think it's interesting the um, the idea that this is a cloud and the fire because cloud usually represents darkness, right? We want we don't want clouds. We want the sun, right? But in this case, the cloud represents the presence of Hashem, and fire sometimes represent can represent danger, can destruction, but in this case, it represents. Um, again, the glory of Hashem. So it's interesting that these two things that can can represent opposite, very, 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 to, to represent some, you know, the most beautiful, divine. They're not necessarily divine symbols in all cases, but they're. But this is how Hashem decided to show Himself, reveal Himself. Very, Just very profound. Um, sometimes darkness means that it's on a very high level 
like there is a verse that says, Yoshes Choshech Sisrei, God hides in darkness, which meaning means that we can't comprehend Him. Darkness doesn't mean inherently darkness, it's darkness to us, which means because we cannot perceive Hashem's presence, so to us it's dark. But in essence, it's the most profound light. Uh, the same thing is with the fire. Uh, it says, Hashem elokecha eish ochlahu. He's like a fire that consumes. Consumes you, takes you in, but also gets rid of all, like when you put the gold, when you're purifying and getting rid burns away all the negative things and negatives. So, so they're both profoundly also uh, representative of Hashem. The darkness is being in a place where we can't really perceive Him. And also that level of fire that consumes you and brings you out exactly. Like said, not a destructive fire, but rather a fire that encompasses you and elevates you and brings you up to the highest of levels. So that's... Purified. Yeah, purification. Pure, purified. It says like the main purification is through fire, not through water. And there is in the... Uh, the, the between the two Ganadins, the upper level of Ganadin and the higher level, there's called the Nahar Dinur. There is a river of fire. And the souls dip themselves in that river of fire before they can go up to the higher level. So that fire purifies them and brings them up to a higher level. But that's there's that concept as well. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. So, Mitzvah Shem, next week, we'll see everybody again, hopefully. Wonderful uh, class. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. Shem. And we shall continue, Mitzvah Shem, Mitzvah Shem, next week. Okay. Everybody have Please a good say week. Say hi. Say hi to Sarah for I will. me. I will. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Welcome. Home. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.